I just want to add my word of welcome to you this morning. Uh, thank you so much for coming to be with us here at Cloverleaf Baptist Church. And especially want to say thank you to those who are visiting with us, some of you for the first time. Please know that we are genuinely thankful that you're with us, and we hope that you are encouraged and challenged by worshiping with us today. And uh, very simply, our desire here is to simply lift Jesus Christ up through our singing, through the reading of the word, through praying. We want it to be all about him. And that's why we have uh, several times that we pray. That's why we read the word is because that's where we see Jesus Christ and all of his glory is in the pages of scripture. And so we want to keep things simple uh, with no, no gimmicks and just simply make Jesus, make Jesus known. Um, I want to add just a little bit to what Michael said at the beginning. I um, want to encourage you to come out and be part of the, the missions conference this weekend. Uh, we'd love to see our whole church family come out. And uh, we'll have sessions on Saturday morning and then again next Sunday. You don't have to listen to me drone on next Sunday. We'll have some missionaries be, will be speaking here with us. Um, we'll have a combined Sunday school class at 930 next Sunday. So uh, we'll all be together here to hear from one of our missionaries and another one preaching in the morning service and another preaching in the evening service. And our desire this weekend is to be equipped to, uh, to better represent Jesus and to get the gospel out and to, to make, him, make him known. Well, before we read our text, let's just, well, actually, let's go ahead and stand as we read our text. Just one final time to stretch our legs and standing out of reverence for the, the word of God. The, the words that we're reading are not human words. They are divine words. They are authoritative words. And I love the reminder of us together as a church family, standing together under the word as, as God's people. So follow along as we read Ephesians 5. We'll read down to verse 14 so we can get the whole context. Ephesians chapter 5, follow along as I read in verse 1. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us, and hath given himself for an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness, let it not once be named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which is not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Proving what is acceptable unto the Lord and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, and whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake, thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, you are holy. Father, we can only approach you through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise you, Father, that we can draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And we ask right now, Lord, that you 
would illuminate our hearts, you would open our eyes, you would open our minds to understand and to obey your word. We pray this morning as we consider what it means to walk in love that you would set before our eyes a display of your glory and majesty. We pray that you would capture our hearts and our affections as we look at the example of Christ and see how that contrasts the twisted view of love that our world has. Father, we pray this morning for the families within Cloverleaf Baptist Church. We pray that we would, as families, walk in love. We pray, Father, that you would protect marriages. We pray that you would help parents who are raising their children to walk in love and appoint them to Christ. Father, we pray that you would bring about in our church a culture of discipling where every member of this church is engaged in ministry of the word, that we would all see ourselves as ministers, as servants of your word. We pray, Father, that we would have a passion for evangelism of making Christ known in this community. Father, we plead with you for our missions conference this weekend, that you would use that in an awesome way in the life of our church to stir our hearts for the, for the nations and for the gospel to go out to the uttermost parts of the earth. Your word tells us, Father, that we ought to pray for kings and for all who are in authority. So we pray this morning for President Biden. We pray this morning for Speaker McCarthy. We pray this morning for Chief Justice Roberts. We pray this morning for Governor Ivey. We pray this morning for for Mayor Stimson. We ask, Father, that you would give our leaders wisdom, that you would give them courage to do what is right. You would give them the ability to to rule justly in your sight, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. We pray that you would protect our ability to boldly and freely declare the gospel. And Father, we want to remember this morning those who are in bonds, those who are suffering persecution. We pray for brothers and sisters who even this morning are meeting in secret because they don't have the freedom we have. Please give them courage and determination to faithfully represent Jesus. We pray for the persecuted church in North Korea. Oh God, we pray that you would allow the gospel to break out and to win people to Christ. Lord, help us now as we open your word. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would preach a better sermon than the one I'm about to preach. Work in our hearts. We pray through Christ. Amen. You may be seated. One of the slogans that we hear a lot in today's world is this, love is love. See it on bumper stickers, love is love. And often, you know, right next to maybe a, a coexist sticker or emblazoned on a, on a rainbow background, love is love. It's a powerful statement that proclaims our modern culture's mantra of Love is love, and it doesn't matter who you love as long as you love someone, and whatever your sense of love is, that's great. It says that love is whatever we want it to be. It declares that love, above all else, is sacrosanct. Maybe a previous generation would have heard the words, all you need is love. It's a, it's a popular word, and hey, who doesn't want love? Right? There's nobody out there, if we were to poll the United States or even the world, to say, Would you rather be loved or hated? We would rather have love rather than hatred. We would rather have peace rather than than violence. But for all of the banding about of the word love and of all of the sloganeering that goes around this idea of love, 
we're a little fuzzy on what love actually means, on what it, what, what, what it means to love someone or for someone to love us and what the boundaries might be and what the definition might be of love. Our world today, and even within the church all too often, understands love as unbridled tolerance, unbridled acceptance. That Love means just accepting whatever anyone does and never criticizing and never maybe saying, that, that might not be right. Of course, those of you who are parents understand that love quite often means telling somebody no. Love quite often says, don't put your finger in the light socket or pick up the nail gun or go walk near the edge of the roof or run around the swimming pool without anybody watching. We understand as parents that love often means setting, setting boundaries, but for some reason when it comes to other areas of our lives, we, we forget that. We forget that. Our world today regards love as whatever you want it to be. So if a man loves another man, then their relationship is as equally deserving of celebration as any other arrangement. In our world, the ideas of purity, of sexual purity, of lifelong monogamy, they've been swept away, right? They're sort of regarded as relics of a bygone era. They've been swept away by the rising tide, or maybe not even the rising tide, a raging tsunami of just changes in what we think is right and wrong. It's assumed today that love means nothing more than sexual desire, and it's assumed today that any attempt to restrain the latter is an attack on the former. In other words, love and self-restraint are pitted against each other. Love, self-restraint, love, purity are set against each other. They're regarded as foes. Truth and affection are taken as enemies. So our modern world has split apart two things, holiness on one side, let's say that's a prudish, backward idea from the Victorian past, and then love, which is freedom, which we all celebrate and enjoy today. But what the world has divided, God intended to be kept together. Love and holiness go together. Genuine love, according to the Bible, is always going to be holy. And genuine holiness is always going to seek other people's well-being. We see it really powerfully in the text that we just read. Notice verse 2. It says, walk in love. Okay, live a lifestyle. That metaphor of walk is just how you go about your life. It's, this is how Paul is structuring the second half of Ephesians. He's using this metaphor of walk. Say, because of the gospel's transforming power, you ought to live differently. So earlier in chapter 4, he said, you're going to walk worthy. You're going to walk in unity. And then he said, you're going to walk in newness, not like you were before you were saved. And now he's saying the Christian life is one of walking in love, genuinely, genuine affection for other people, seeking their ultimate well-being, even at great expense to yourself. But verse 8, did you notice verse 8? It says, walk as children of light. Light's a picture of, of holiness and purity and being more like God and all of the ideas that are not popular today. And did you notice Paul puts these ideas side by side, walk in love Walk in holiness, both of them going together. And really, it's hard to divide these two paragraphs, though I think for sake of time, we're just going to cover verses 1 to 7 today, and we'll look at 8 to 14 next week. But it's hard to separate walking in love and walking in light, being holy and genuinely having love. This calls us to a lifestyle as Christians. This is the staggering thing. As Christians, we're not just called to be, to be nice. We're called to be holy like God. You see the call in verse 1? Be ye therefore followers of God. Be imitators of God. That is what we are called to as Christians. 
This is not just try harder. We need a supernatural infusion of divine grace and power to be able to do this. God calls us as Christians to walk in love. God calls us as Christians to live with deep and profound affection for one another. God calls us as Christians to uphold sexual purity as an expression of genuine love. So let's just unpack this a little bit. Uh, What does it mean to walk in love? Let's give some some definition. Let's fill that in a little bit. Let's consider first off in verse 1, love source. Where does love come from? We just sort of take it for granted that love is this sort of, you know, human emotion we all experience and feel. But you know where love ultimately is sourced? It is ultimately sourced in God. First John says, God is love. Like, this is definitional to who he is. And because God is love, we're ought to lo- we ought to love one another. We're called to love because God is love. Because there is this inherent love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit going all the way back to eternity past, overflowing into the creation of the world. And God calls us to live in love because of who he is. So verse 1 says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. That word followers is the idea of mimicking or imitators. The source and the standard of our love is not what everyone else is doing. See, here's the mistake we often make is we're like, hey, we know what love is. And then we project that back onto God to say, well, God must be like that. When the Bible goes the opposite direction, it doesn't reason up from the way we live, but it reasons down from the way that God is. Be followers, be imitators of God. That is absolutely staggering. To be imitators of God. Now, Paul in other places will say, be be an imitator of me or follow in my footsteps. But he says, here's the ultimate one we follow and imitate. The, the, The ultimate standard, the ultimate source is God. We're called to imitate a God we cannot fathom, to copy a deity that we cannot even fully define because he's infinite. And this is what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian is not simply about going to church. It's not simply about being sort of basically moral. It is about a relationship with this kind of God, a relationship so profound that it changes the way we live. We started off the service reading 2 Corinthians 3. As we gaze upon and worship and admire and love and walk with God, you know what begins to happen? We begin to be transformed from one level of glory to the next. We begin to become what we worship. We're called to imitate God. Before such a God who is infinitely holy, we're to bow down and worship. Think about this for a second. God is so far beyond us. His holiness is absolutely unspotted by even the faintest hint of sin. His love is untarnished by greed. His righteousness is unmarked by any injustice. This is God and this is us and we fall short of his glory and we need forgiveness and grace and mercy for this to happen. There's a reason why Ephesians 5 verse 1 comes in Ephesians 5 and not in Ephesians 1 because it's assuming that a fundamental transformation has happened in our heart. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, verse 1 is really, really bad news. It is an impossible command. Unless you have been born again and given a new nature and been transformed by the gospel, this verse will only lead to despair. But if you are a believer in Christ, you have been given the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of you and begins this work of transformation from the inside out. Be followers of God. But notice the second part of that verse, as dear children. I love this. We mimic God 
not like a soldier in a communist army just sort of imitates the big generalissimo at the top. No, we mimic God like a child wants to mimic his parents. So we're now at the stage with Timothy where he's copying everything I do. So I, the other day I was walking around and I put my hand in my pocket. He looks at me, I'm going to put my hand in my pocket. He's just, I want to copy everything that dad's doing, which is really terrifying, right? As Christians, the imitation we have of God is not for us to be godlike, but for us to be childlike, to be like children imitating their parents. This says that as Christians, as we grow in Christ, the family likeness should be more and more apparent. This flows out of relationship with God as our Father. Not as God as this distant God who's throwing lightning bolts down at us from Mount Olympus. Not as this God who's just sort of a big Santa Claus in the sky. Not as a God who just sort of hands down moral rules that he wants us to follow, and if we follow them good enough, he'll give us a thumbs up. But a God who loves us as his own children. Now, this ties back into Ephesians 1. We've been adopted into the family. Ephesians, more than any other book in the New Testament, makes reference to God as our Father and references to the Trinity and us being brought into that relationship that transforms us. That's the source of love, is God himself and a relationship that we have with him through Christ. That's stunning. Be followers, imitators of God as dear children, in verse 2, and walk in love. So you're like, what does it mean to imitate God? I need some definition. Okay, good. I need to imitate God like a, like, like a child bearing the family likeness. What's that going to look like? Well, I'm really glad you asked, because verse 2 fills it out for us. And this brings us to our, our next point, love's definition. And walk in love. That's the call for us to live our lifestyles in, in a loving kind of way where we're showing genuine love to people around us specifically within the body of Christ. We're called to walk in love. Now, now, what is love? Let's just give a little bit of a definition here. Love is seeking someone else's ultimate good, even at great expense to yourself. It's saying, here's what is ultimately best for them, and I'm going to seek that with all of my heart, even if it costs me. That's what love is. It's driven by an affection that values the other person and says, I want what's ultimately best for them. So that means love is not always going to be permissive. A parent's not going to let their kid do whatever they want and be like, sure, you can go ride the dirt bike off the roof if you want to. Why? Because you want what's ultimately good for your kid and driving dirt bikes off of roofs and ending up in the hospital with broken bones is not ultimately good for them. In the same way, God loves us in the same kind of way where he's seeking not the short-term good of us being happy and just kind of getting along with life. He's seeking our ultimate and eternal joy in Christ. And he's willing to do whatever it takes to get us there. C.S. Lewis says, God has paid us the intolerable uh, compliment of loving us. He loves us too much to leave us where we are, so he brings suffering, and he brings hardship, and he brings trials in our lives so we grow to be more like Christ, because that's what's ultimately good. The Christian life, I love this, this idea of walk. Because sometimes we think the Christian life is, man, you're in a church service, and you really get stirred, and you go down to the altar, and you cry, and there's all this emotion, these, and the Christian life is sort of measured by these epochs of the, like, emotional explosions. No, the Christian life is a walk. It's the day in, the day out. It is Monday. It's when you're at work on Tuesday, and you don't want to get along with your coworker. It's when you're at home, and things are a little tense with your spouse, and you want to lash out, and you're called to forgive. The Christian life, walking in love, is not measured by the great moments of spiritual elation or mysticism, but the moment-by-moment obedience 
in the drudgery of daily life. You see, love is a lifestyle. Walk in love. It's a command. It's it's something that we act on, not just sort of warm, fuzzy feelings and butterflies and unicorns. It's an action, a way we live our lives. But let's drill down to the definition. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given himself for an offering and a sacrifice to God. So you want to see what love looks like? Love is Christ. It's not just something that Jesus shows us. Like the very measure of love is Jesus himself. Love is love is not a true statement. Love is Christ is. He is the measure of love. You see, love requires both this childlike imitation of God and this Christ-like sacrifice. Which means not everything we call love these days deserves the title. Love as Christ has loved us and given himself as an offering. Christ loved us. He didn't love us when we got our act together. Right? It wasn't like, hey, good, you've kind of shaped up enough. Now I love you. Ephesians 1, back where we started, God loved us from before the foundation of the world. Right? Like, and God, you know, he, he sees our whole lives in an instant, and he's not looking down the corridors of time and being like, there's some really good qualities there for me to love. No, when God looks at us from before the foundation of the world, he sees us as hell-deserving sinners, and he chooses to love us anyway. That's pretty staggering. Okay, so Christ loved us, and he continues to love us, and that love is displayed by the fact that he has given himself over as a sacrifice, which tells us this about love. Love is sacrificial. The ultimate declaration and demonstration of love is the cross. For when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God commends his love toward us. While we are still in rebellion against God, Jesus goes to the cross. He bears the wrath of God. He pays the penalty for our sin for us. But notice there's a little word here in verse 2. He has given himself. Jesus going to the cross is not just sort of like the, well, the wheels of fate are just sort of turning and there's a conspiracy in Judas and all this stuff, and it's just sort of happening to Jesus, and he's a hapless victim. No, Jesus says, I lay my life down of my own accord. He goes to the cross willingly. That's how we know it's love. It's not just suffering, but it's love because he does it willingly and voluntarily for us. He's given himself over for us. This is self-sacrifice for the salvation of other people. Listen, there's no way where we can be saved or forgiven. Anyone in this room, there's no way for you to be right with God without the cross, without Jesus' death in your place to satisfy the wrath of God. See, our sin's a really, really big deal to God. Sin is such a big deal to God, he can't just overlook it and ignore it and sweep it under the rug like an unscrupulous janitor. So what does God do? He doesn't sweep sin under the rug. He nails sin to the cross. He takes our sin and he puts it on his son Jesus, and Jesus bears the penalty of our sin. Why? Because he loves us. He sacrifices his own life so we can be forgiven, so we can go free. That is mind-boggling. That's a sacrifice to God. Now notice the verse says he's given himself as an offering and a sacrifice. Those words basically mean the same thing. To God for a sweet-smelling savor. This is not Aslan sacrificing himself to the white witch. This is not a you know, ransom to Satan. Jesus doesn't offer himself over to Satan. He's a sacrifice to God. He's satisfying God's wrath against sin because God hates sin and Jesus satisfies. That justice 
in our place. So here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. So we want to see what love looks like. Love is Christ-like. Love is sacrificial. Love is focused on others. Love's definition is how Jesus lived his life. That's what we're called to. So I want to walk in love. It's not what you think it is. It's living like this. It's saying, I am going to set aside what I want for the ultimate good of other people. I'm willing to sacrifice my preferences and my desires and my rights for the ultimate good of other people. I'm willing to seek their good, even if I don't get anything in return. See, we can sort of, sort of uh, get good at pretending to show this kind of service and love so we can get something out of it. I'll go do something good for them, and then maybe they'll sort of come around and do something good for me. I'll invite them over for dinner with sort of the sneaking hopes that they'll invite me back over to dinner next week and sort of do the good turn back to me. This is not a sort of let's seek good karma kind of thing. This is I'm going to love like Jesus loves because that is good and right in the eyes of a holy God, not for any benefit that I get from this. So that's love's definition. But verse 3 does something surprising. It shows us love's corruption. So walk in love, and this is all great and beautiful, but contrast, verse 3, fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not once be named among you as becometh saints. So Satan cannot create anything. Only God can create. Satan can only take the good things God has made and then twist them and mess them up. And Satan's way of doing this is he has taken God's good gift of love and relationships and he has twisted it as sexual sin. Okay, God's the one who created sex. God is the one who ordained marriage. They are good and wholesome and righteous gifts from God. But Satan, one of his biggest ploys is to take those powerful and good and wonderful gifts and to try to turn them against God. So fornication, that word simply means sexual immorality. God has given this gift of sex, and he says this is to be enjoyed within the context of a covenant relationship in marriage. And in that place, it is good, and it is beautiful, and it is wonderful. What Satan does is he likes to stir our hearts up to reject God and rebel against him. He'll call us to say, well, before you're married, it's okay. Or within marriage, you can have an affair. And all of these ways, a million different ways that he twists that good gift. Now, what is this doing in this text? You're like... Okay, we sort of lurched from walking in love and Jesus and the cross to all of a sudden we're, we're, we're talking about sexual immorality. If self-sacrifice is the essence of love, then self-indulgence is the opposite of love. And that is what is being described in verse 3. Love seeks to give, lust seeks to take. Whereas love is interested in another person's ultimate good that is rightness with God, sexual sin is interested only in taking for personal pleasure and satisfaction. So let's just just lay this out very clearly. Our world has come to a place where it has tolerated all kinds of sexual sin, and it's normal, and the the statistics and all these things show that people regard things as normal that previous generations would not have. Fornication refers to any sexual activity outside of the context of a covenant relationship between a husband and wife. So living with your girlfriend to see if things work, that is fornication and is sin against God. Having an affair is fornication and sin against God. Homosexuality is fornication and is sin against God. 
Messing around with your boyfriend or your girlfriend is fornication and a sin against God. Let's just lay that out very clearly, and I know that's not what this world likes to hear, but it is simply true. Let's call sin what it is. We have this other term, uncleanness, because you might say, oh, good, I thank you, O oh God, that I'm not as other men are. I, I've not done any of those things, so I'm good to go. Well, uncleanness covers a whole range of other sins in the, in the same category. You see, you can pat yourself on the back to say, I've not committed the physical act of fornication, so I'm good to go. It's kind of the young people who want to ask, how far can I go? How, how far to the line can I go in my relationship without sinning against God? Uncleanness covers a lot of territory, the thoughts, the motivations, the desires that might be there. This term impurity, this term uncleanness, deals with sexual impurity in regards to thoughts and desires and passions and words. You see, God demands that we be pure in our hearts and in our minds and in our thoughts. To even desire sin is sin. Like, that's the standard God has for us is so high. To even desire sin and want sin and long after sin, that very desire is also sin. So uncleanness. We get covetousness. Well, that seems like an odd thing. So we think covetousness, greed, wanting people's money. I don't know this is as much about wanting money as it is about wanting somebody's body, right? Do not covet your neighbor's wife. Paul's including this in terms of lust. You see, he's getting down beneath the behavior, avoid fornication, down to what drives it, which is this, I've got to have, and I am owed, and I deserve, and I want, and I need to satisfy the flesh. He's in greediness. It is simply the desire for more. It is overreaching. You see, sexual sin is not driven by the context. Well, I was lonely, and I needed a friend, and one thing is my biology and genetics. Paul says, what drives it? is covetousness, which is idolatry. We do what we do because we love what we love. Underlying sexual sin is lust, that selfish sense of entitlement. It's this greedy lust. It can attach itself to all kinds of things, money, to sex, to food. And Now, notice what Paul says. He says, these things should not once be named among you as become a saint. Now, he's not saying you can't mention the word because Paul just mentioned these words very clearly. But what he's saying is these kinds of sins, sexual sins, should be so foreign to the people of God that there's no need to ever bring them up. They should be so foreign to the assembly of God's people that that it's, it's a shock and it's out of the norm when these are going on in the lives of Christians. So in 1 Corinthians 5, when there is a very serious case, a guy is committing incest. Paul says, you're doing something that even the Gentiles don't do. There is shock and there is horror and there is recoiling. Would to God that we would regain the sense of recoiling at sin. He says, they should not once be named among you. Such sin should be so out of character for Christians. There's not even a whiff of scandal or hint of compromise on these matters. So notice what he says. He says, it's not fitting, as is, uh, or at the end of verse 3, as becometh saints. It is not becoming, it is not fitting for the people of God. He's reminding us, this doesn't fit with who you are in Christ. In Christ, you're holy. In Christ, you're pure. In Christ, you're set apart. And these sins don't fit with who you are. We've been set apart by God's grace. We've been declared righteous by his verdict, washed clean by his son's own blood. So he says, let it not once be named. He goes on to verse 4 to move from 
actions to words, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient. Again, they're not fitting for who you are as Christians, but rather giving of thanks. So he moves from these actions and desires to simple vulgarity. Listen, there's all kinds of things that we will tolerate in the names of humor. Say, oh, that's funny, and joke about stuff that ought not be joked about, and have jokes with double entendre and hidden meanings. So much that we will tolerate in the name of entertainment that goes contrary to God's law, contrary to God's word. So this word filthiness in verse 4, the idea of obscenity, obscene speech or action, that which should be shameful that then gets normalized. Foolish talk is treating sin as no big deal when it's morally corrupt. This idea of jesting is, it's not that God's opposed to humor. He's opposed to off-color kind of humor. You see, here's what happens. When we begin to laugh at the sin that should make us weep, our sense of right and wrong begins to be degraded. Having a constant torrent of off-color jokes and things that minimize sin is eroding the bank. Kent Hughes put it this way. If you laugh often enough at evil, your moral perception may begin to blur, and ultimately your moral conduct may be subverted. John Stott referred to this verse. He said, these terms refer to a dirty mind expressing itself in dirty conversation. Again, God's concerned with the heart. Now, here's my point. All of these sins that are mentioned, sexual immorality, uncleanness, lust, uh, shameful speech, foolish talking, inappropriate humors, all of these things in the context of what Paul is doing, he is saying they are antithetical to genuine love. They, you cannot say, I'm, I genuinely love someone, but I also want them to sin with me. I genuinely love someone, but I'm going to simply objectify them and lust after them. You don't love them. He's saying those things fall short and are a perversion and a corruption of genuine love. Now, notice what he says in verse 4. He says, rather than using your tongue to, you know, for filthiness, foolish talking, jesting, which are not convenient, he says, rather there should be giving of thanks. That's what God gave you your tongue for, not to joke and belittle and make light of sin, but to give thanks to God for all that he has given to us. Now, verses 5 and 6 should be very sobering. In a world, in a society that is pornographied, in a society where sin is normal, in a, in a society where people don't even shrug their shoulders at hearing that people are just kind of living together and doing whatever, and who cares, none of my business. Verses 5 and 6 should shake us awake. For this ye know, and the, the, the structure here in Greek is very emphatic. You really know this. This is something that is just foundationally, axiomatically true. You know this, that no whoremonger, okay, this is the we have these three terms in verse 3, fornication, uncleanness, covetousness. They're the same words in verse 5. So no fornicator, individual who engages in a lifestyle of sexual immorality, no unclean person, no covetous person, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let me just make that very clear. People who do these things, Paul says, are not saved. That, that, that's what the verse says. And then in case you missed the point, verse 6, let no man deceive you with vain words, with empty arguments. For because of these things, okay, fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, the wrath of God is coming upon the children of disobedience. So the people whose lives are marked by these sins, 
Number one, they don't have any part whatsoever in the kingdom of Christ. And number two, will face the wrath of God. That's so antithetical to the way we think today. Ah, I'm saved by grace. Let's continue in sin that grace may abound. The gospel so fundamentally transforms us, so radically changes our direction in life, that for someone to persist in these, sin, these sins calls into question whether they are saved or not. Now, let me be very clear as well. We're not saved by cleaning up our lives. It's not, well, if I can stop fornication and uncleanness and covetousness, I'll make it to heaven. We're only saved by grace through faith in spite of our sin, in spite of our evil. And I also want to say this. People can be saved and fall into these sins. Okay, we think of David in the Old Testament. He takes another man's wife. He sins horrifically. And he's still a saved individual. So we're not saying that, oh, you did this one time, you've lost your salvation or you can't be saved. But what we are saying and what Paul is saying here is if your life is marked by these sins without repentance and without concern, there's no reason for you to believe that you are saved. Churches are full of people who are deluding themselves and saying, Lord, Lord, I've prayed the sinner's prayer and I've just continued on in my sin without any concern. One day I never, will hear one day I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You see, the Christian has a fundamentally altered relationship with sin. Rather than sin being that which we love, sin becomes that which we fight against. Our posture changes towards it. Now, we will never be sinlessly perfect this side of heaven. We are going to battle the flesh. We're going to fight sin till the day we die. But that's the point. We battle it and we fight it. Those who embrace it, those who coddle it, those who nurture it, those who engage in it without feeling any conviction does not have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, there there are some who will say, well, that just means you won't get rewards. That's not what it says. You have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. You have no place in heaven, and you will instead face God's wrath. Heavy stuff calls us to radical repentance. The the gospel is not simply invite Jesus into your heart. The gospel is repent and believe. We have a change of heart towards sin that changes the way we live the rest of our lives. So Christians can and do fall into these sins. But when they do, Christians can and they do repent and run back to Christ. So maybe you're here this morning and you say, I, I, I am trusting Christ, but I'm trapped in sin. I've been overtaken in a fault. Run back to Christ. Run back to Jesus. You don't have to stay in the dark and hide and persist in sin and guilt and shame. Run back to him. So Paul says the immoral will experience God's wrath. The immoral will not experience the kingdom. Don't let anyone deceive you. Easy believism will say, well, accept forgiveness, but don't worry about repentance. Let no man deceive you with vain words. Our modern society says what you do with your body is no one's business. And who cares what God says? Let no man deceive you with empty words. You see, the sins that Paul is talking about here that are antithetical to genuine love Well, our society will say they're not a big deal. Well, many in the church will say it's not a big deal. God is saying they are a big deal. Just because culture has normalized sin does not mean that the church is at liberty to normalize it. 
Just because all your friends are doing certain things does not mean that you should do what they are doing. So I don't want to end the message here on this this heavy note, right, of like, man, sexual immorality, and this is really depressing. And How does love transform us? Right? How does love rescue us from this kind of lifestyle? Whether as someone who is unrepentant, who's not a Christian, or a believer who has stumbled into sin, what is the solution and the answer to these kinds of sins? Well, what I want to do is just go back and read, re, rework our way through verses 1 to 6 and see how God gives us the answer to sexual sin, whatever that sexual sin might be, whatever the form that lust is expressing itself in. So how does love transform us? Well, verses 1 and 2, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us. Oftentimes, people never gain victory over sin because they do not believe there is any hope. One of the ways that Satan keeps people shackled in sin is with guilt and shame. Guilt and shame just holds you down, holds you back. Verses 1 and 2 That's the key that unlocks the prison cell of sin. That's the key that takes the shackles of shame off, is the fact that Christ died in our place. So if you want to be be transformed by the love of Christ, you want to experience the love of Christ to, to rescue you from sin, you must experience God's love, love that forgives us and love that frees us. Put it this way. If I have to sort of earn my way to, to, into God's good books by doing good things, and I've got to convince everyone else that I'm doing good things, my natural tendency will be trying to just cover sin rather than confess it. But if I approach sin as a believer from a standpoint of I am loved by God and Jesus died for me and I'm forgiven on the basis of what Christ did on the cross, that gives me the freedom to confront sin head on. Because my standing before God is not based on what I do, it's based on what He did So you want to be transformed by God's love? You first off need to experience God's love. You need to experience through faith what it means for Jesus to love you and to know that he died for you. You see, gaining forgiveness and freedom is possible. There is hope through Christ. When we confess and repent, when we bring sin out of the dark into the light, we are immediately pardoned. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. But not only do we need to experience his love, we also need to express his love. So we talked about this last week. When God calls us to change, he doesn't just say, stop doing bad stuff. Just knock it off, quit it. He also calls us to say, pursue the opposite, right? So if the sins we're talking about are ultimately about sort of self-gratification and me, me, me doing what I want, you know, one of the ways that you're going to kill sin and kill lust is by saying, I'm going to do the opposite. Instead of using people, I'm going to serve people. Instead of objectifying people, I'm going to esteem people. And so walking in love, expressing God's love, changes the way that we think about other people. Rather than seeing them as bodies to lust, we see them as individuals to serve. Walking in love, self-sacrifice, service for others. That is the exact opposite of what is described in verses 3 to 6. The only way that we will be able to drive out lust and sexual sin is by committing ourselves to serving other people. Just think about ways and be creative. How can you serve rather than take? 
How can you serve rather than be served? You see, it's impossible to simultaneously need people for your own fulfillment and love people. Those are incompatible. One is about giving and the other is about taking. Walking in love means serving others in practical, selfless ways. And that is one way to break the tyranny of the flesh that says, me, 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 is to attack it with service that says, others, others, others. So love transforms us as we experience God's love. Be followers, imitators of God as dear children. Love transforms us as we express it in service to other people. And love transforms us as we begin to enjoy God's love. Verse 4 says, hey, get rid of all of this filthiness, foolish talking, jesting, which are not convenient, but rather what? Giving of thanks. Giving thanks for what? Well, the whole first half of the book of Ephesians gives us enough fuel for the fires of thanksgiving to last an eternity. Give thanks for the fact that blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according to the fact that he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto himself, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And you go on and you go on through the book of Ephesians and you see example after example after example of God's infinite and transforming and saving love and saving grace for us to give thanks. See, giving thanks... It almost sticks out like a sore thumb in the middle of a discussion about immorality. Like, what does that have to do with the price of eggs? What does giving thanks have to do with loving and defeating sin and all these things? Well, again, immorality is intensely self-centered, but thanksgiving is inherently God-centered. We're, we're, we're driving out sin with new affections. So this is about taking away the greedy heart and replacing it with a grateful heart because greed and gratitude cannot coexist. It's like remember as a kid when you were playing the game, sort of king of the hill. Only one person can be on top of the hill. The way you drive out sin is with new affections and with new loves. It's not enough just to say, I'm going to stop doing certain things, but I'm going to pursue a life of gratitude before God. Heath Lambert puts it this way. The logic of lust requires you to be discontent with what you have and pay attention to all the things you don't have. The logic of thankfulness requires you to focus on what you already have already received and to be overcome with thanks. Gratitude is the opposite of greed. So this is not just thrown in here for good measure. Oh, give thanks. But this is one of the weapons God gives us to go to war against sin and to kill it. You see, thankfulness produces joy. And joy is ultimately what, you, what you're after when you sin. You're believing the lie that the sin can make me happy when it can't. It's going to leave you empty and it's going to leave you eternally damned in the end. But you believe the lie, it's going to make me happy. Thankfulness produces joy and joy is what you're ultimately after when you sin. Now I want to just finish off where we started back in verse 1. Love transforms us. It has the ability to deliver us from sin and any sin, no matter how deep and prolonged. I mean, God's love is what we're talking about. As we experience it by putting our faith and trust in Christ, as we express it in serving others, and as we enjoy it in worship. But back to verse 1, be ye therefore followers of God, be imitators of God as dear children. How does that work? How do we become imitators of God? 
We started off the service today reading 2 Corinthians 3. As we behold, as we gaze upon the glory and the love of God revealed in Christ, as we admire it with all of our hearts, as we revel in it, as we enjoy it, we begin to be transformed. See, I would be giving you a useless message to simply say, fornication's wrong, knock it off. Without telling you how, the way that we ultimately get deliverance from sin is by gazing upon the glory of Christ and seeing His majesty and seeing His beauty and seeing His love and tasting that as the most soul-satisfying reality in all of the universe. You see, we ultimately become what we worship. And the more we worship and love God, the more we become like Him. The more I can, com- can comprehend with all of the saints the depth and the length and the breadth and the height of the love of God, the more I will be equipped to love like that. The more I will look at others through that same set of glasses, the more I realize that God loves me in Christ, the more I will look at others as the objects of His love, not the objects for me to get what I want. Think about how God loved us. He loved us in the beloved one, Christ. Not because I'm lovely, but because Jesus is. He loved me even when I was dead in my trespasses and sins. And at the cross, God's love was displayed in such a powerful way that it can motivate and empower my love for him and for other people. So where we started is saying holiness, love, which is that the answer here is both. Genuine love is going to be holy. Genuine holiness is going to be about loving other people. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us. Would you just bow with me? We don't want to simply hear the word today.